And if you would all please stand for the reading of God's word, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 33, if you'd like to follow along. Jacob lifted up his eyes and look, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. He put the servants with their children in front. Then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord and Seir. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth, and built himself a house, and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padamaram. He camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamar, Shechem's father, he brought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he has, had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. The word of God, you may be seated. (laughs) Have you ever in your life had tension between you and a loved one? A grudge? Like you've wronged them or they've wronged you and it's been years You wrote it off like this is just the way it's going to be. And it's maybe maybe in the body of Christ that wronged you, that hurt you. A big thing that we talk about now is church hurt. What is it like 
to meet with that person. And then what God has done in both of your lives causes you to have complete restoration, to have this moment like Jacob and Esau have here where they embrace each other and know that forgiveness and restoration is theirs in, G- in, in the Lord. It is like seeing the face of God. I, was, I watched, um, I, I do my message and then I watch some other sermons, other pastors. I read a bunch of commentaries. And the one thing I thought was interesting is that so many of them just kind of brush over this. Like they acknowledge, okay, this is pretty cool that Jacob and Esau are reconciled. I'd say to you today, this is one of the most supernatural events in Jacob's life. It's one of the most supernatural events in Jacob's life because we see at the very end of the book of the beginnings when brothers are reunited and and restored to one another, that this is the working of God himself. And that Jacob, he may have been using hyperbole here, but it's like seeing the face of God. We all have, you know, many of my sermons, I don't know exactly how they'll apply to every person. I know there's a general way, but this, this sermon right here, it applies to each and every one of us because each and every one of us to live life, you get hurt and you hurt. So many people are deceived and they think, okay, no, no, I've never hurt anybody. Everything just happens to you. You never happened to anybody else. I guarantee you, you've hurt others as others have hurt you. This is a universal thing. Jacob, even though something very specific in his life, you, you didn't grow up uh, the heir to a great tribe and things like that, but you have grown up, you have people around you, whether they're actual siblings or friends, neighbors, church folk, and you have perhaps unresolved issues with them. How wonderful would it be to be together and to be restored? This is what heaven's reunite, reuniting in heaven will be like. All of the pain, all the suffering, all the problems, all the hurts, habits, and hangups we had on earth will melt away as we are under the face of the Lord. Jacob now walks with a limp, and that explains everything. Before the master sculptor makes the jar of clay, he first breaks down the clay, he makes it soft enough to mold, and then he puts it in the fire to harden the clay. And his strength is made perfect in our weakness because we are these jars of clay that have the Holy Spirit inside of us so that all might know that this all-surpassing power does not come from us, but it comes from him. Jacob is now finally a clay pot. He was this hard brick before this. Now he's finally been molded and now he's been shaped. And now through the fire of, of this worry and anxiety that he's been feeling, he is now this clay pot that the Holy Spirit can inhabit. And then we see these great things happen. He's now named Israel. So here's the thing. If you think you're an awesome, expensive China vase, don't be surprised that the Lord doesn't use you. The Lord uses clay pots because that's what we are ultimately. Jacob walks with a limp and that explains everything. His pride has died. And now when he sees his, sees his brother Esau, he can't even begin to comprehend until Esau embraces him how much God has worked on his behalf. Now, Jacob here, Israel, um, he has an incredible change in his life in the last chapter. He wrestles with the Lord all night long and the Lord changes his name from Jacob deceiver to Israel, which means he who strives with God and man and overcomes. There's different ways of translating Israel. You could also translate it as God's brawler and that, that fits him very well. 
Now, for the rest of Jacob, Israel's life, he will go back and forward, kind of like all of us, right? We have the old nature and we have the new nature. We have the spirit nature, we have the flesh nature. Since we are nearing October, and October, the last day of October, not Halloween, it's Reformation Day. It is the anniversary of when Martin Luther pounded the 95 Theses on Wittenberg Chapel in Wittenberg, Germany. I thought I would remind you of a Latin phrase that was coined by Martin Luther, simul justus eta precator. It means simultaneously justified, yet capable of sin. Or to put it more simply, both sinner and saint. In this chapter, we see Jacob has changed. His direct has changed. The way he sees the world has changed. Absolutely, he's a new person. However, the old person, even in this chapter, reemerges. His conversion's not fake. Any believer, no matter at the length of time they've been in Christ, they will revert to the old way of life. Jacob doesn't return to the promised land like God had told him in chapter 22. In fact, even in this chapter, he'll only have a partial obedience, just like his grandpa Abraham. In the book of Genesis, Abram, for instance, we started this whole series on the patriarchs with Abram. As soon as Abram becomes Abraham, the biblical writers of the New Testament, when referring to his life back when he was named Abram, will call him Abraham. See, the, something thematically happens with uh, Simon Peter. There's a point in time in the scripture is he's Simon, and a point after that he's Peter, even though he's known as both. And then Paul and Saul as well. Even though both are his name, he wasn't renamed. In the, in the scripture, as soon as he has his conversion experience, almost exclusively, he, is, he goes by Paul. Jacob and Israel, it's different at the rest of Genesis, 45 more times he'll be called Jacob, and only 23 more times will he be called Israel. And it's the same for you and me. Hopefully not as frequently as Jacob, but we revert to the old self. Now and again, those old habits, those old empty wells. In Jacob's struggle, we find hope for ourselves. After, um, after all, we have his example to draw from, but we have also a greater hope because we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Jacob, what Jacob had to have happen in his life is his pride needed to die. And in chapter 32, his pride did die. He comes with such a humble attitude, bowing himself seven times before he even meets with Esau. Before this, his pride, trying to work out everything himself that had died in the previous chapter. In many people's views, in Thomas Aquinas, for instance, in Summa Theologica, sees pride as the deadly, most deadly of deadly sins. A sin that originates other sins. That we envy because of pride. Our anger, our rage is because of pride. Jacob has dealt with pride in a considerable fashion. But at the top of 33, he has been humbled. He has made his plans and his plans have been for nothing if his brother wanted trouble. So here he is limping towards his brother and 400 warriors. One thing we, we should take from this is meet with God before you meet with man. That'll change every interaction you ever have. You got something going on? Before you meet with other people, meet with the Lord. It changes your perspective. If nothing else, it changes you. And most of the time, it'll change the outcome of the situation. Because if you come to the situation, you should, you should rather want to be limping like Jacob rather than strutting like John Travolta. I thought that joke was funny, but I don't care. All right, what, what do you have to fear from men when you've been wrestling with God all night? 
What I want to focus on in this chapter as I preach through it is Jacob's relationship with God has changed. The way he sees God has changed. In chapter 28, when he met with God in a dream, he says, if God will do these things, then he will be my God. But at the end of this chapter, that very last verse, he names a place, El Elohi Israel, the God, God, the God of Israel. So his, his way he's related to God has changed because now he is a new creation. One, he now sees him as Yahweh Shalom. Two, now he sees him as Yahweh Yaira. And three, Elohi, El Elohi Israel. So the first part right here, he now knows that God is his peace. God is the great peacemaker. In Psalm chapter 33, the whole Psalm, it's only three verses. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. In verse 1, Jacob is limping. We see in this chapter two brothers being reunited, not just reunited, but their relationship being restored. And yes, it is a very blessed thing how pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Before that happens, Jacob is limping. In verse 1, And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. One thing I think is interesting, I follow this when I'm reading Genesis, is I like the phrase, and they lifted up their eyes, or they lifted up their head. Because what we see and how we see things depends on our level of faith. See, before this, when he heard that, when he had heard that there was 400 men coming with Esau, and even to this point, he assumes... I'm dead. Everybody's dead. In fact, the last chapter, his great plan, his best case scenario is that if Esau starts attacking, I'll have one part of my family as a human shield while me and the rest get out of there. Okay, that's a pretty terrible plan, right? Best case scenario in that plan is utter tragedy. In this one, he, looks up his, he lifts up his eyes and he can see Esau coming with his 400 men. And in verse 2, we start seeing some of the old Jacob come out. In verse 2, he has a new plan. And he put the servants with their children in front. Then Leah with her children and Rachel with Joseph last of all. It's a bit of the old Jacob because he's playing favorites again. He's playing favorites because he puts his favorite in the back, meaning they'll hopefully be safe. If Esau and his 400 men start attacking, at least Rachel and Joseph will be safe. I wonder if his other sons caught on to his favoritism here. I I don't wonder. I know that they did. I know that, that Jacob spared no time in their lives letting them know who was the favorite and who was second. So some of the old Jacob... Not the Israel is, is starting to show here, but however he is changing, though he's not perfect. Remember that Latin phrase, simul justus and precator, eta precator? Simultaneously, both justified and capable of sin. He is, there is a change in his life. In verse three, he himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. So last week, when we went over the last chapter, he was going to have one come here, one go there. Now he's leading it because he figures, right? If Esau's still sore about things, he can kill me. Just like he 
Just like back in their home country, amongst their father's tents, when Esau was comforting himself with the thought of killing his brother, and I made that joke about Smeagol and Gollum because it said he said it to himself, but everybody knows, so he must be talking to himself really loud. So Jacob obviously figures, hey, if he's going to kill somebody, let him just kill me. Maybe he'll be satisfied. Maybe then he won't kill the rest of my family. Maybe then he won't take all of my livestock and my, and my children, my boys. They can still live. So he had, there's this change in his life where it's not all about him anymore. He puts others before himself. Not perfectly, but there's a change. There's this significant change in his life that he is now willing to take on the danger himself. Now, there is still some lack of faith here. Because he sees this, he is bowing down seven times. He is still trying to appease his brother's wrath instead of trusting the Lord his God. Verse four. Verse four, emotionally, is one of the most incredible verses in the Old Testament. See, it's one thing when people are getting along and there's good fellowship. It's another thing when there's been 20 years of resentment building up. And you get verse four. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. That's better than you can hope for. That is better than in the physical you can possibly imagine. I know so many people, I know problems even in my own family that go back to when we were like little kids that are still unresolved. People come to my office and they haven't talked with their sister for 20 years. And let me tell you, if they, if they put them in the same room, it's not going to be verse four. It's going to be claws, claws coming out, incriminations from all the way back in the day. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus gives a series of three parables about losing something. The first is a lost coin. The second is a lost sheep. And then the third one is about two lost sons. One might wonder if Jesus was actually referring to Jacob. And truly he was referring to Jacob, but he was referring to all of us. Because of all of us, like Jacob, are a mixture between the older and the younger brother. In Jacob's case, he is lost. He is lost in a foreign land. He has gone away from the tents of his father. Unlike the younger son in the story that Jesus, that Jesus had, had said, instead of taking his inheritance, he steals his older brother's inheritance. He's like the older brother in Jesus' story in that he is a man of the tents. But he's like the younger brother who he goes to a faraway land, comes to his senses, starts coming back. And as he's coming back, he sees, he sees his brother who he had deceived, who he had wronged, not once, but twice. He runs away to that faraway land, the faraway land, instead of being stricken with poverty, po poverty he, is, he comes to prosperity by the hand of God, according to the promise God had made with his fathers. When praying, he sounds much like the prodigal son, that he is not worthy of the least of the blessings that God had lavished upon him. The younger son in Jesus' story, when he comes back, he, when he thinks to himself, hey, my servants, the servants of my father have it better than me. And at the moment, he's looking at the pods the pigs are eating. He's like, man, wouldn't it be great to eat those because he's so hungry? So he thinks, I'm going to go back to my father and I got this plan. As soon as my father comes to me, I'm going to say, I have sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. Make me like one of your, and actually in the Greek, it's doulos, slaves. Make me like one of your slaves. 
because he couldn't possibly hope for a restoration. He couldn't possibly hope after he had hurt his father, after he had disgraced his father, that there could possibly be full restoration. So he has this plan that when he gets to his father, he is going to say all of these things. And here we see Jacob as his brother is coming, as he sees his brother, he bowed down seven times. We're going to try the plan. Hopefully the plan works. He can never imagine the amazing grace of God. We often underestimate the amazing grace of God. In chapter 15 of Luke, it says, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. This is a miracle. The night before he wrestled with God, that morning he knows God has kept his word and that the love of God has been shed abroad in his life. The prodigal has come home. And I don't really know even about Esau, where Esau's heart was. And we don't know because the story's not about Esau. We know that Esau, he represents Edom. Edom becomes a client state of Israel. So the, the older serves the younger in perpetuity. But we don't know exactly where Esau is at. C.H. Spurgeon believes that Esau, he's been satisfied with the things of this world. And I think that is in alignment with the scriptures in Hebrews where it says Esau was godless. So he's satisfied with the things of this world. So he doesn't feel so sore that, that Jacob had stolen what amounts to just a spiritual blessing. But I do know with Jacob, his heart has been changed. He now knows the God of peace, Yahweh Shalom. One of the compound names of God is Yahweh Shalom. God is my peace. Shalom in the Hebrew, it doesn't simply mean we're not fighting right now. United States, we have certain words when we talk about our peace with other countries. We can literally be killing their people or their soldiers and say we're at peace. Peace in the scriptures, in Hebrews, in the Hebrew language, shalom, it means to be complete, like you'd want a wall to be complete, sound, whole. It's being whole like you would wish a wall to be whole. Jacob knew God as the God of Abraham, but now he knows him as Yahweh Shalom, the God of peace, because he has brought in peace between two brothers. He also knows, knows him as Yahweh Yaira. Now, when I say the compound names of God, you might be confused. Um, trying to think of how much I want to go into this. It's a bit of nerd stuff, but basically the letter J wasn't invented until the 16th century. So Jehovah couldn't possibly be God's covenant name in the Old Testament. Um, it would have been Yahweh, which is the better translation of the Tetragrammatron, which is the four consonants that make God's name Y-H-W-H. And then Yaira instead of Jaira, because once again, J didn't exist back then. So Yahweh Yaira. Jacob grew up with the story of his grandfather taking his father up a hill to sacrifice him, according to the word of the Lord. When they were going up this hill, he had said, he had asked his father, Isaac had asked Abraham, where is our sacrifice? And Abraham replies back to, back to Isaac, Jacob's father, Yahweh Yaira, God will provide. He'd been told earlier, take your son, your only son, whom you love, up to the hill that I will show you and sacrifice him. 
So they go up to the hill and when he's ready to sacrifice him, the Lord stops him and tells him, now I know you fear me. And at that moment, they see this sheep caught by its horns in the thicket. And they name that place Yahweh Yaira. And thousands and generations later, Jacob's great, 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 I don't know how many greats, grandson, who is fully God and fully man, is brought up to that hill or a very close hill. And the blade does not stop. His hands are nailed. His feet are nailed. His side is pierced. And his blood is poured out because God provides the sacrifice. Because if it wasn't for Christ, you should be sacrificed. If you do not know the Lord today, know that if you die with your sins on your head, you will enter eternity for eternal judgment. But if you know the Lord today, that sacrifice, he is the great provider. We used to sing songs, Jehovah Jireh, my provider, his grace is sufficient for me, for me, for me. I love that song. Every time I sang, sang it, I always thought of physical blessings, of course. I thought like, okay, um, car's not working, we pray to Jehovah Jireh and the car will be working. Oh my word, what God has provided for you and for me is so much more than physical blessings. What has he provided for Jacob in this story is not just when, when his brother's asking him, hey, what are, who are all these people? What is all these flocks? And he tells him about God providing for him. Well, you know what God has provided? Restoration between two brothers. You can't put a price on that. Some of us, we've had troubles with somebody for so long, we don't even pray about it anymore. Because we think that, well, where's Yahweh Yaira right now? But God does provide. He provides restoration. In the next several verses here, Esau asks about, what are, what are these children in verses five and on here? And then Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children. He said, who are these with you? Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near they and their children and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. Esau said, what, um, what do you mean by all this company that I have met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself." They're catching up here. They're trying to uh, figure out, you know, the last 20 years, what has happened in each other's lives. He's, Esau is very interested in all of his nieces and nephews, his sisters-in-law. And Jacob is going to insist on blessing him. Yet Esau here, he refuses. Jacob's intent is on blessing his brother, just like he had said through the servants in the last chapter. And he wants to make good on his on his oath that he had sworn to Esau through these servants. But Esau refuses this gift. And I get that, because I know I've been in that place. I don't know if you've been in that place, where because of pride, perhaps, we don't want to accept blessings from other people. I've got enough. Use it for yourself. Of course, that robs them of the blessing of giving as well. We don't realize that we're actually doing them harm by refusing that gift. It is easier, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And I wonder if sometimes our reluctance to accept blessing is because of perhaps a pride issue in our life. I know it certainly has been in mine. In verse 10, that's what I named this sermon, sermon right here. As Jacob is insisting on blessing Esau, it says, Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, 
then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. In the book, in the musical, Les Miserables, I don't know if I said that right, it's French. There is a line in the last bit of the narrative, to love one another is to see the face of God. I would say that entirely matters what we mean by the word love. But I would also say this, is that when, we, when you see the love of God played out in your life, you see the face of God in your life. You can see the hand of God everywhere. In every molecule and every atom, you see the hand of God. You see the fingerprints of God in all of the universe, in all of creation. But when you see restoration in the body of Christ, you see the face of God smiling down. The ironic blessing says... May the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you. We see the face of God when we allow the Holy Spirit to bring about restoration in our relationships. He is Yahweh Yaira, the one who provides. And it's not just flocks, it's not just wives, it's not just children that God had provided for Jacob. He has provided restoration between Jacob and Esau. Jacob sees this too. In the last chapter, he had said that he had seen the face of God and somehow lived. Now he isn't wrestling with the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, but he sees his brother and his brother doesn't want to, not only doesn't want to kill him, he doesn't hate him. He loves him and wants to be around him. This is, this is the work of Yahweh Yairah who thousands of years later from that moment provides another sacrifice, his own son, his only son whom he loved and was well pleased with. He was the sacrifice instead of us. It's that gospel power at work in the Old Testament because he is also the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. In verses 11 through 16, this is one of the more, I don't know if complex or disappointing parts in Jacob's life, because we have these two brothers being restored. They are embracing one another. They're crying on each other's neck and they're, you know, it's a different culture. They're, they're kissing. Um, I'm hoping on the cheek because that's super weird to me as a 21st century American man. Um, but anyway, we were like, okay, great. Now they lived happily ever after. They're going to go back to their father's land and they're going to live in this unity. That's not reality. That's not what happened. And the Bible is not a book of stories and fairy tales. It's not of an author saying, hey, I'd like for this to happen. It's what actually happened. And for that, we go back to Jacob, becoming Jacob, being like the old person again instead of Israel. Weaknesses in reality. Jacob insists on blessing Esau, which by the way, we should insist on blessing people too, even when they try to reject our blessing, to insist on it. He hasn't received this blessing. Um, if, uh, if we were writing a physical story, if we were writing this story, we probably at this point in time write, and they lived happily ever after. What happens next is really, I don't believe what should have happened, what would have been good for it to happen. I shouldn't say should have happened, what would have been good. And I base that what happens on the very end of Genesis. When you have brothers who have wronged another brother, there's restoration. They live together in peace, just as the psalmist says. This, they, they don't. For whatever reason, perhaps Joseph is suspicious of the forgiveness from Esau, or he's just not acting in faith. But for whatever reason, they do not journey on together. Esau wants to be fully united to his brother, even though that would mean taking a backseat to him. Jacob seems to be more hesitant. Like he can only trust this forgiveness so much. His sons will feel the same way about their second to youngest brother, Joseph. That's reality. We are weak. And we don't always walk in faith. 
To compound this error further, when Jacob does move on, he does not move in to the place that God had told him to move into in chapter 31. So in this last, this last name of God right here, El Elohi Yisrael, in verses 17 through 21. So I broke in this sermon up, this chapter up into the names of God that I feel apply to the different way that, J- that Jacob is responding to the Lord. God has, God has in one sense no name in that all of his names are descriptions of himself as opposed to a proper name, or, and he also has many names. El Shaddai, Lord God Almighty. El Elyon, the God Most High. Adonai, Lord and Master. Yahweh, which means I am. The compound names of God, there's El Olam, the everlasting God, Elohim, God. But do you know the name that God wants to be known in your life more than any other? My God. My God. In chapter 28, Jacob, after having this dream where there's this stairway to heaven, he, after he has this dream, he names the place Bethel, which means house of God. And after that, he says, if God will do what he's promised, and he says all these things, there's a lot of if coming from this. He's like, then the Lord will be my God. He names the place he moves to El Elohi Yisrael, God, the God of Israel. That's what he wants to be known in your life. He wants to be known as the God of Jason, the God of Josh, the God of Wayne, the God of Paul. Insert your name, your God. In verse 17, we see consequences starting to arise from these decisions. Verse 17, but Jacob returned to Sukkoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkoth. Sukkoth, remember when we did the Feast of Israels, there's the Feast of Sukkot, which means the Feast of Booths. So he had, he had made a booth, he had made a tabernacle, a tent, but then he had built a house. Um, it's almost like in verses uh, 18 and 19 here, he is, he is doing an impression of his great uncle Lot. This is apparent in Jacob as he is doing this he is doing a lot impression where he first camps outside a city. Then he moves into the city. He is now building a house in the city. This is not where God had told him to return. God had told him to return to Bethel and to the tents of his father. Instead, Jacob camps outside the city, then builds his own house. Sounds a lot like a certain great uncle who puts his tent outside Sodom, but before long, he's living in Sodom. For Jacob, this is going to have consequences in the next chapter. Dire dire consequences for his children. This will have good dire consequences for their neighbors as well. Once again, Jacob, he is changing, but he is not yet where he needs to be. In verse 20, we see a significant change in, in Jacob's life in that now God is called his God. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Ya Israel, the God of Israel. In chapter 28, God appears to Jacob in a dream in which the angels are ascending and descending a stairway. His promise, um, he promised Jacob land, offspring, and to be a blessing to all families, and that he would be with him and bring him back safely. God has done all this and will continue to do it. He has land. He may not be in that land, but he has land. He has offspring, 12, but 13 is on its way. 
He has just blessed the family of his brother Esau, and God has, back, has brought him back safely to the promised land. In fact, the place that they're at, Sukkot, um, which is, which is uh, by um, Shechem, is the place that when Jesus meets the woman at the well, that's the well. When they said, our father Jacob had built this well, that's where the well is at. And we go our ways in our disobedience, but God finds us. He goes after, he leaves the 99, and he goes after the one. And it's at this place, he finally calls God his God. El Elohi, Israel means God, the God of Israel. Jacob is not perfect. He's reverted to old patterns already, but the direction of his life has changed. And it's one thing I, 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 I want to just pound into everyone's heart is that you can't have an experience with the God of all the universe and remain unchanged, even though you still have a sinful nature that you fall back into. And then we have to continually come back to that throne of grace with confidence to receive mercy and grace. And we have so much advantage over Jacob in that we have Jacob's story and we have the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us. And maybe you've reverted to the old person. And I don't care if you've been a believer for a day or a hundred years, that absolutely can happen to you. All you have to do is absolutely nothing. Just don't be concerned with your spiritual life and you will drift away. You'll go back to old patterns. You'll do things that you told people you would never do and you warned other people about and you won't even notice it until you're too far gone. Just do nothing. We drift towards danger. We don't drift towards safety. I don't care if you've been a believer for a day or a hundred years, you can go back to the old person. You can go back to those old ways, which is insanity because that's not who you are anymore. It's not who you are anymore. You've been changed. You've been remade if you are in Christ. Worship team, would you come up at this time? Seeing the face of God. I'll share with you three verses from the New Testament from different authors that inform what we just saw here between Jacob and Esau. 1 Peter 4.8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. I don't care how good the church is. I think our church is awesome. But I don't care how good the church is. We hurt each other. Absolutely we do. I don't care how good your relationship is with your kids, with your spouse, with your parents, or with your, with your siblings. We hurt each other. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers over a multitude of sins. So many people, they've been so badly, in hurt, so badly hurt in churches, they just write it all off. Therefore, you do never have the opportunity to make it right. And you carry the bitterness forever. One of the opportunities in church is that we get to live this amongst each other, forgiving one another as Christ, God in Christ has forgiven us. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember your brother as something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go first, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. There are many verses in scripture, many sections in scripture that just get ignored. This is one of the top ones. Even amongst godly people of the past, for instance, the author of um, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, whose name Escapes me at the moment. I hate when that happens. He and his wife constantly, constantly fought. In fact, they were split up towards the end of his life. And he, he, he thanked God. He prayed that she'd never come back. 
It's not okay. I don't care how many people he led to the Lord. Your first ministry is to your family. So many of us, we do ignore this and we think, okay, I can bring my gift. I can bring my talent and I can do all these things. And God is just going to overlook, like we could bribe God, but God says, leave your gift there before the altar and go first, be reconciled to your brother, then and come and offer your gift. Whether or not Jacob does the right thing about, about telling his brother to go one way and he goes another, I know this at least I can say in his, in his defense is things are right between him and Esau and now he can go on. If you're wondering why you're having such difficulties, maybe you're holding on to unforgiveness and the Holy Spirit is unwilling to let you pretend that everything is okay. He wants you to be reconciled to that brother or to that sister, to that mother, father, husband, wife, friend, whatever, boss. In Romans 12, 18, if possible, as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, notice that there is clause right here as it depends on you. Sometimes somebody doesn't like you and there's nothing you can do about it. You can't have peace with them. But if it depends on you, if it's just a matter of you humbling yourself, be that person. Joseph, when his brother's coming, at the very least, he bows down. He calls him his, he calls him his Lord. Now, not saying his God, his Lord, as a way of trying to show his humble state. So if it's a matter of you humbling yourself, humble yourself. If it's your pride that is causing the division between you and another person, it's not good. That's sinful. And to ask God to take our pride away. Maybe we're on the other side of this and we're like Jacob and we have a hard time believing that forgiveness is genuine or we have a hard time of really accepting somebody else's forgiveness. We assume the worst. They might be saying, yes, I forgive you. I love you with their mouths. But in our mind, we're thinking they hate us. They hate our guts. And they don't even want to be around us. The modern American adult and probably teenager and kid too, we wake up and we have a breakfast of fear and anxiety. We have our lunch with a side of anxiety. We, we ate a, a smorgasbord of anxiety and fear for dinner. And in the middle of the night, we wake up and we go to the fridge of worry and we, 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 we empty that thing out. So we assume the absolute worst. And the vast majority, something of nearly 90% of the things we worry about never happen. You know what that means? 90% of your life, you live in a fantasy world of fear and anxiety. No wonder the Lord says, cast all your cares on me, for I care for you. My burden is easy. My yoke is light. We live in these alternate worlds of fear and anxiety. And we see Jacob here. It may have been sensible for him to think that, but it was all for nothing. All the anxiety, all the worry, absolutely nothing. He sees his brother. His brother runs to him and embraces him. Peace. El um, Yahweh Shalom. Who do you need to make peace with? This isn't a rhetorical question. Who do you need to pray to have peace with? Maybe it's exactly what I said, and you've been trying to have peace with this person, but they have a hard heart, so you have to pray for softening of their heart. Or maybe you're the one with the hard heart, and you need to ask God, soften my heart towards this person. Who do you need to forgive? Maybe it is your literal brother and sis or sister, or maybe it's your brother or sister in Christ. Yahweh Yaira. God's provision is much bigger than physical needs. He provides for salvation and for healing for the heart. El 
Elohi Yisrael. Today, is he your God? Is he your God? If you were to die right now and you came before him, could you honestly tell him, El, Elohi, yes, Jason, or whatever your name happens to be, God, the God of me. Have you seen the face of God in your life, the primary way, which is through salvation, repentance, and faith? You've put all your hope in him. You have nothing left over for anything else. Maybe today is the day of salvation. Today is the day he becomes El, Elohi, yeah, whatever your name is. Today is he your God. The worship team's going to play our last song. We're going to do something different today as I just feel the leading of the Holy Spirit. You guys go ahead and play and everything our last song. I would ask you, congregation, if you have, if any of this has hit somewhere in your life, maybe it is, you need to make peace with somebody or it's somebody who doesn't want peace with you and you need to pray for their heart to be softened. Maybe you need God's provision in your life. It could be physical, it could be healing, or maybe it's something that's spiritual, emotional. Or maybe today is the day of salvation. You would say to yourself, I do not know the Lord. I do not know if I would die, I would be with him, or if I would be in judgment forever. Today is the day of salvation. And I would just ask for you to come up to the front, up to the altar area. If you want prayer, When you're up here, raise your hand, get my attention. If not, I'm just going to assume you're having your time with the Lord. When the worship teams plays, I would just ask, congregation, come up to the front. If that is you in any way, shape, or form. Worship team, would you please lead us?